Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike and Jude sit down with Bates Gill, head of the Department of Security Studies and Criminology at Macquarie University and author of the book, Daring to Struggle, China's Global Ambitions Under Xi Jinping. They discuss key themes that emerge from the book, including Xi's risk tolerance, China's main ambitions, and potential allied efforts towards deterrence. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Michael Green, CEO of the U.S. Studies Center at the University of Sydney and Kissinger Chair at CSIS. And I'm joined by my co-host for the podcast, Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And our guest today, a former CSISer, the distinguished Bates Gill, who is joining us from Sydney. Bates is the chair in the Department of Security Studies and Criminology at Macquarie University in Sydney, inaugural scholar in residence at the Asia Society Australia, and senior associate fellow with RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute. He's written a really important book. I've read it twice now, once to do the back cover blurb and once for this podcast called Daring to Struggle, China's Global Ambitions Under Xi Jinping. And Jude and Bates are going to get into some of the Pekingology. I'll try to steer the conversation for the rest of us in terms of what it means for allies and partners. But Bates, we always start the podcast, especially for younger professionals and students who are curious how they can become Bates Gill by asking you, how did you become Bates Gill? How'd you get into China? How'd you pursue this career in think tanks and academia and really elevate yourself to one of the most sought after experts on the future of uh, China? Well, first of all, thanks very much, Mike. And thanks to you, Jude, as well. It's great to see you and hear from you both and looking forward to the conversation. Well, uh, I guess go back to the late 1970s. I was in university and thought I was going to become a French-speaking expert of Mediterranean microstates and live out my life in places like Monaco or Andorra or something. But around that time, late 1978, early 1979, normalization of U.S.-China relations occurs. We get a visit from this diminutive uh, Chinese leader, Deng Xiaoping, who appears on the cover of Time magazine. And I was smitten. I was fascinated. I wanted to know what was going on in the world to bring such remarkable change to that relationship. So I started taking Chinese. And as soon as I could, I got on an airplane and went over to live and work in China in the mid-1980s. And it all sort of unfolded from there, I guess. I mean, in some ways, I think the the ride in U.S.-China relations has just been remarkable since that time. And I think I've just been fortunate maybe to, to get in a little bit early and, and to try and be a part of this incredible experience over all those years. I hope you at least get to vacation sometimes in Mediterranean microstates. And occasionally, occasionally. I've noticed that almost every China expert I talked to meant to be something else when they were in their 20s. <laughs> I don't know about you, Jude. I, I meant to uh, own a bookstore in Alaska or, or run a craft brewery, but I'm, I'm doing this. Bates, you know, uh, I should add that one biographical detail you hasn't been mentioned is you were the Freeman chair at CSIS. So you were yes. you were the Deng Xiaoping to my Hu Jintao. With, with, I, you, with you in charge, I am at yeah. ease, Jude. I don't want to be Huagulafeng because that means I'm, I'm, I'm about to see a soft purge here uh, fairly quickly. <laughs> you know, Bates, it's one of the curious things about this period of Chinese grand strategy is we've had Xi Jinping in power for almost a decade. And really, there's only a handful of books that have seriously tackled studies of his time in power. We have a bookshelf here at home that probably has four dozen books on Vladimir Putin. 
But the number of, of volumes that have really in-depth gone into Xi Jinping's leadership are, are scant. And I think yours is the best that has, has emerged so far. So there's a little bit of an enigma. He's been around for a decade, but we still feel there's so many areas of his leadership that we're still coming to grips with. If I could just ask you a, an initial question, you've been watching him very closely throughout the duration of his time as general secretary starting in late 2012. What would you say now, coming to the end of this second five-year term, are the defining characteristics of Xi Jinping as leader, as strategist, and as small G governor? You know, I think that was one of the big reasons I wanted to do this book was because I didn't see that there had been uh, a great deal focusing on his time in power. Uh, we're coming up to you know, this milestone of, of 10 years. So it just seemed like an opportune moment to try and get into this. And, and really, some of this work on him really arose for me five or six years ago. And I was asking myself those sorts of questions that you've just asked. What sort of leader is he? In a few words, Politics in command is is a is a phrase I like to use. I see him as a leader who has done more, really, perhaps since any leader in China since Mao, to try and inject ideological confidence and ideological fervor even uh, into the ranks of the party and its ability and desire to lead China. Greater risk taker, I think that's pretty clear. Willing to push the envelope in ways that others have not, you know, the whole shift from hide and bide to moving to the world center stage very much defines his, I think, leadership character. And then maybe he is determined to have a legacy and to position him as, you know, if not the greatest, certainly one of the greatest leaders that China has known uh, over the past century or more. So all of this combines, I think, in ways that, as I say in the book, you know, leads us to a much more contested and even dangerous situation in our dealings with China. Bates, as a follow-up on that issue of risk-taking, and this is a sort of perennial debate about structure versus agency, but where do you come down on thinking about the elevated level of risk taking, is this a function of personality? Is this a function of Xi Jinping inheriting a party state of significantly greater aggregate capabilities than Jiang Zemin did or sort of early Hu Jintao? Or is this a greater risk-taking as a function of Xi Jinping and the system noticing opportunities in the international order, which had to be seized sooner than later? And that could be perceptions U.S. power was weakening, new technologies coming online that they needed to be much more forceful. Xi Jinping said in 2013, sort of grabbing the bull by the nose of the fourth industrial revolution. Or, of course, answer D is, is all of the above. Well, of course, I, I would probably want to settle more on all of the above, but one of the problems we have is trying to play armchair psychologist and really understand whether she, as an individual, as a human, is somehow a greater, more prone to risk-taking. I'm not so sure that as an individual that we, we have the evidence to fall squarely on that explanation, but I think some of the others are pretty powerful. I mean, clearly, we have a China today that is far more capable of pursuing the kinds of assertive efforts that they've undertaken, you know, far more capable militarily, far more capable economically. The tools in their toolkit are much more effective and, and coercive or inducive in some respects and, and allows China to pursue Chinese national interests more strongly. And at the same time, of course, I do believe that one reason he was picked to be the leader by the party was because he represented, I think, a confidence, a belief in the party itself and in the imperative of its survival uh, and the imperative that it achieve legitimacy and that he could be the proper sort of vanguard or individual to represent that imperative. So when you combine that with the increased capacity 
to pursue China's and the party's interests, they combine in this very powerful way to lead to the kind of risk-taking and, and envelope pushing that we see. Bates, you emphasize early on in the book that you do not purport to reveal China's secret grand strategy. And you, you deliberately avoid a very linear description of what China's trying to achieve, which sets this book apart, frankly, from a decade of books uh, that try to claim they understand China's secret strategy. And I think having written on the history of grand strategy in the US and Japan, that's a good approach because nation states, even authoritarian nation states, don't pursue clean linear plans. There's trial and error, there's contestation, even in an authoritarian state. And I like very much the way you organize it around five, you call them interests. I I read it thinking they're really impulses that drive Xi, sovereignty, ideas, uh, and so forth. But I do want to push you a little bit on the strategy question, because people in the policy world look at what Xi is trying to achieve in these five areas you describe and do see something of a deliberate strategy to undermine alliances, to assert denial and control over the first and second island chain. There is a plan and I've, I've been to the Academy of Military Studies 10 years ago, but been surprised to have you know senior colonels describe with timetables the plan. Although that's not what you tried in the book, could you you know indulge us a little bit? And how would you describe to policymakers the plan that is emanating from this uh, set of five interests, principally in the Western Pacific, as it affects Japan, Australia, U.S. bases, and the order in the region? I guess the way I frame it up is it's sort of six principal interests or objectives that I think drive China's interactions with the outside world under Xi, just to rattle through them here, you know, legitimacy, sovereignty, wealth, power, leadership, and ideas. And I guess what the point I was making in the book is that you're not going to see that Venn diagram that I use in the Academy of Military Sciences. I'm not sure that Chinese strategists would necessarily use those six terms as a way of describing what, what they're trying to achieve. But when you add them together and see how they act synergistically with one another, I find it to be a pretty useful framework for understanding what we're seeing. Does it amount to a grand strategy? Well, I don't really go down that that pathway, but does it amount to a set of policies which are increasingly gaining strength, at least from China's point of view, as a necessary imperative to be pushing these in these areas for its own interests? I think that is what we're seeing. And then in the book, I think where we would see those objectives most impacting sort of the interests of U.S. allies and friends, particularly within the first and second island chain, I guess I would point most strongly to the subjective of power that I talk about in the book, which I define as mostly as hard power. So, you know, coercive and inducive leverage, which China can use through its economic as well as military might to try and create facts on the ground in that area, in the first and second island chain that are more conducive to Chinese interests. So I think, you know, the last two weeks, we've seen this most prominently demonstrated by the massive military exercises which China conducted around Taiwan, you know, as a very strong effort, an attempt to signal China's intentions or capabilities vis-a-vis Taiwan and to warn off friends of the United States like Japan from uh, contemplating intervention and maybe most importantly, trying to send a warning signal to the United States as well. So I think, as I write in the book, this is not likely to let up. And of course, I couldn't have known that these military exercises were going to take place when I wrote the book, but I don't think it's at all inconsistent with what I talk about as China's increasing effort to keep pushing the envelope, to dare to struggle even harder on these important objectives. And I think we saw that loud and clear in this most recent episode across the Taiwan Strait. Sorry, it was six. I was counting on the fingers on one hand and got stuck at five. 
You know, you in the last chapter talk about some of the challenges and there are clear contradictions among these six interests or impulses or objectives, big contradictions. And you note in particular that on questions of legitimacy and sovereignty, the domestic audience always trumps the international audience. That's the kind of contradiction or tension in objectives that require grand strategy. John Lewis Gaddis, the historian, said the essence of grand strategy is resolving fundamental contradictions in your interests. And reading the book and watching she, it seems among these six objectives, it's it's not a disciplined grand strategy, actually. He's he's pushing on all six. Is that an accurate characterization or do you think there's more discipline in Jung Nong Hai than we see? Well, I really struggle with trying to sort this out. It'd be great to hear Jude's thoughts on this. The way I resolve or try to understand how in Jung Nong Hai these contradictions are resolved is by Chinese leaders making the calculation that the risks entailed in not pursuing these objectives, contradictions and all, the risks of not doing so are greater than the risks that are involved in pursuing them. So it's not as if I can't believe that Xi Jinping and his closest leadership colleagues don't know that much of what they are pursuing has created riskier outcomes. Uh, Maybe they don't see them as clearly as we'd like them to see them, obviously, because that's a deterrent factor for us. But I can't believe they don't understand that there are some risks entailed, but at the end of the day, those risks are, in their view, not as great as not pursuing them. And in some ways that comes back to, I think, yeah, again, the domestic situation that for many of these objectives, it is precisely in order to, in their view, help stabilize or at least strengthen or bolster the party's leadership capabilities. Looking from the outside, I think I see more contradictions and greater risk in that approach, but that may not be the way they calculate it. Bates, can I ask you to stay on the connection between grand strategy and China's political system? Just as I was listening to you talk, I was thinking, I wonder if China knows how to functionally and effectively use the level of power it has now in a surgical, calculated way. We're so used to thinking about the Communist Party as very good at formulating and implementing strategies when it has massive asymmetric weaknesses compared to the Japanese, the KMT, and then relative to the United States for so long. Someone made a comment to me the other day who a military analyst when looking at the Chinese exercises in the Straits and said they thought it was like a 15-year-old who gets their learner's permit, but their parents gift them a Ford Mustang. So they've got these massive capabilities, but not the decades of experience like the United States does as a functional hegemon since right after World War II, learning how to sort of use military power, for example, in effective ways in other domains, how to try to calibrate more accurately deterrence, what you think is a deterrent signal such that it actually is received as such, not in China's case, it's almost always received as an escalatory signal. So I want to put that back into you. Is there something about China being new at this superpower game over the past 10 to 15 years that has coincided with Xi Jinping's time in power, which may explain, Mike said tensions, but I also feel like we're seeing some real growing pains. Well, well, China is new, relatively speaking, to the hegemonic great power game. Let's face it, as much as our Chinese friends like to remind us that what we're seeing, in fact, is a return of China to world prominence, which I guess, you know, over the grand sweep of, of several centuries is true. It is nevertheless still the case that in terms of our contemporary and current China, this is a very, very new situation for China. And in fact, I think internally we, we see evidence that they continue to struggle even conceptually about how to square that circle between being 
by some measures, the world's most powerful country, at least economically, with this continuing self-identity as a developing world state, as a peacefully minded nation. And that's a deep tension between those two identities that I think they've yet to resolve. Now, in the case of Taiwan, in some respects, obviously, they've been planning and preparing for precisely what we saw last week. They've been preparing and planning for that for a long, long time, up to and including even various invasion scenarios. We shouldn't be all that surprised that literally at the flip of a switch, all kinds of fireworks can be launched. And yes, probably not with a great deal of nuance or tactical concern about how to send proper deterrent signals. Recall that it's only been about 10 or 12 years that China as a military has even been able to sustain an ongoing three-ship flotilla across the Indian Ocean to the Gulf of Aden to conduct anti-piracy patrols. For the Chinese PLA Navy, that's a remarkable accomplishment, but by its very comparatively diminutive status is, is also a sort of indicator of just how far uh, I think the PLA still has to go. But close in, near Chinese shores, on a question as sensitive and as huge to them as Taiwan, well, they can bring a lot of firepower to bear and nuance be damned on this particular question. Thinking ahead a bit on that, we've got this 20th Party Congress coming up maybe sometime end of October. And I think one of the big questions, especially coming off of the back of Pelosi's visit and the now several rounds of exercises we've seen following the two Codells, questions hang out there about how Xi Jinping's risk tolerance might adjust or shift after the 20th Party Congress. Do we see him settle into the comfortable leather chair that is a third term and he is able to kick his feet up? Or do we think this might actually usher in a an increasingly bold arrow now that he has vanquished domestic opponents and been able to grab the mantle of a third term? He can now start sprinting ahead on some of these long-held objectives that are still out of China's grasp. Where do you come down on that? I would come down on the latter, I think, Jude. There's nothing that we have been able to discern so far that he's headed for a comfortable leather chair. And just the, the very fact that there remain enormous, unresolved, unrequited objectives for China's future, for his legacy, for the achievement, as he puts it, of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. I don't see how he can sit back and not continue to pursue them. There's just simply too much at stake, even possibly existential for him at stake if he doesn't continue to pursue these big objectives that he's set out, not least, for example, retaking of Taiwan. But there are other big, big challenges on the economic front. I think probably there's still continued work to be done, in his view, to bring greater stability and certainty to party legitimacy and leadership, especially in contested areas of the country, in Tibet in Xinjiang, possibly elsewhere. So there are some big challenges ahead for him. And he's going to be 70 years old next year. Plenty of time for him. And I don't see much evidence that, that he's ready to go down to a lower gear. I want to turn it over to Mike in a minute, but I want to ask one final question, building directly on your comments just now. There is a debate going on in D.C., and I don't know how much of this has transferred over to your neck of the woods, that China is now peaking, that if you rack and stack the very evident and real headwinds that China is facing right now, the increasingly hostile international environment, the demographic challenges, the insistence on COVID zero, and also a, a seeming shift in the style of leadership away from technocracy towards, as you mentioned earlier, politics and command. This does not augur well for China's continued rise. 
And the implication of this is rather than thinking about China as this decades long challenge we're going to have to manage, actually, this is, in the words of Hal Brands and, and Mike Beckley, the danger zone. Kevin Rudd has called this the dangerous decade. Where do you weigh in on China's growth trajectory and how we should think about the duration of time in this competition? Is this something we should we can play the patient long game or do we have a short, sharp competition right in our face now? I'm drawn to the term peak Xi and peak China in many respects. I mean, that doesn't mean that tomorrow or after the 20th Party Congress, we're going to see a, an off the cliff decline in his authority or in the power of the country. I think we're still going into an era where China remains extremely powerful. But it's those headwinds, which I talk about in the book and which you've mentioned, that I think are seemingly increasingly powerful. I, I like to make the case that it would be a tough argument, I would think, that China's in a better place today in terms of its international relationships than it was 10 years ago. At least if we were there, that, that's certainly an argument I think we could make quite powerfully. But again, those risks, as we talked about before, are apparently worth having in relation to a larger risk that party continues to have about domestic stability and leadership legitimacy going forward. So I, I think these constraints are only going to increase. It's not decoupling exactly, but there's deeper and deeper skepticism about economic relations with China, diversification happening across the board from most of its major markets, a situation which, of course, the Ukraine tragedy and China's reaction to it has not improved. And of course, we have deeper and deeper concerns about the very nature of, of China's authoritarian government and its attempts to try and promote some of its own thinking politically around the world, also facing serious pushback. And we haven't even begun then to talk about um, these domestic challenges, economically, demographically, in terms of increasing productivity and other challenges. So I wouldn't write China off. It's a huge economy. It's, it's demonstrated its resilience in the past. It has enormous uh, instruments and tools that it can exercise to try and meet many of these challenges. But I think this has got to be the hardest set of challenges that China's faced perhaps since the aftermath of the Tiananmen bloodbath back in 1989. And I guess we're just going to have to see, you know, how effective uh, she can be. My own view is that he's got about maybe 10 more years of possible influence and authority that he can exercise. I don't think the model that he's chosen thus far to try and deal with some of these problems, at least in their initial stages, is going to work very well for him. Uh, that's going to, I think, introduce even deeper contradictions into both their domestic and, and foreign policy. Whether that means, you know, nationalistic backlash or some effort to try and externalize those problems in a way, say, vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, I think it's quite likely. And it, it is in this window that we're going to see whether or not Xi's leadership style ultimately succeeds. It's possible going forward, you know, 10 years from now, if Xi Jinping begins to fade from the scene, maybe, maybe there is a sixth generation leadership out there that would be somewhat more accommodating or somewhat more willing to engage in a uh, steady state or more stable set of relationships with key partners like the United States. But I'm not too confident about that. And I, I really think that we're, we are entering a much more contested period for all the reasons we've just discussed. It's the White House Indo-Pacific strategy that came out earlier in the year, I think largely aligns with where you come out in the book. They argue that their focus will be on shaping the environment around China and that the administration does not seek to shape China itself or China's choices, which I don't think most people picked up on, but I certainly did because in national security strategy documents, quadrennial defense reviews in the Pentagon, since the end of the Cold War, really, 
certainly since the Clinton administration, the premise was that we were shaping the choices of rising powers like China. And they've kind of moved away from that. And it sounds like maybe they're right to do so from what you're saying, because the drivers and the domestic risks are so great that it would be very hard for us to change Xi's calculation, the six objectives you've described. But I want to test that a little bit with you. Is that right? Are there things we could be doing over the coming five to 10 years, above and beyond things like AUKUS and the Quad, that might change the calculation. And that could be on the reassurance side, and it could be on the deterrence and dissuasion side. We're not breaking through this debate in Zhangnanghai, from what you're saying, but are there things that might, or is it not worth the risk to us to try either reassurance or even more pronounced measures at deterrence and dissuasion and counterbalancing than we've done? There's certainly a lot more I think we could do Mike, to try and affect that calculus and try and constrain the risk-taking elements of it that we see. We could talk for another whole hour on some of these things, and I guess I might just point to two that I think we could do more work. And I think they're relatively obvious. One, a much more comprehensive and nuanced conversation, not just with our allies in developing on the military side, greater degrees of cooperation like through AUKUS or through our relations with Japan or or the Quad for that matter. But I'm also thinking about a lot of other smaller, maybe less resourced neighbors of China that are in desperate need of support, of greater capacity, and a greater degree, I think, of confidence that the United States would be prepared to be helpful to them, as sensitive as that can sometimes be for those countries in their relationship with China. I would you know, include in that list countries like the Philippines, Vietnam, even Taiwan. We know very well there's a lot of work to be done to bolster its ability to stand up and be more resilient to military threats from China. And maybe not just simply arms sales, but I think a lot more needs to be done both rhetorically as well and in demonstrating American will and capacity to assist these countries. That's one area. But a second one, and maybe this is less tangible, but I think nonetheless still important, part of Xi Jinping's calculus, I think, rests upon an assumption that America and the West is in decline and that the model, the political economic model that the United States and the West, broadly speaking, has utilized for its success over the past two centuries is on the wane. We won't know for a long time to come whether they're right, but we could surely do a great deal more, both in terms of you know strengthening ourselves, doing a better job of developing, strengthening, promoting our preferred political economic model so it succeeds at home and with our friends and allies, but also presents an attractive option to others in the world. For China, they are increasingly playing in this ideological game. They're increasingly playing in the battle of ideas against the West, against the United States in particular. And, you know, in some cases, gaining adherence or at least gaining support. If we can diminish their confidence on that front, if we can up our game in a way that makes that element of their foreign policy even more challenging and difficult, or even expose it for the vulnerabilities and flaws it has, that too, I think, is going to be a way to stay some of of China's actions going forward. We have a strong hand to play. The surveys we've done at CSIS, going all the way back to when you were there, show pretty consistently, in fact, increasingly, that democratic norms are far more attractive in the Indo-Pacific and, of course, in much of the world. Our challenge is we have to be disciplined because if we make it about China, it won't take. It has to be about self-strengthening. But I always have felt that when the U.S. is on the side of self-strengthening and national ambitions, we win. <laughs> and uh, our, our model has trouble at home, but the, but the values and norms do have attraction. So Bates, congratulations on the book. 
during the struggle, China's global ambitions under Xi Jinping. It's a really well-structured, compelling read. And I think it'll be some time before, you know, this is off the bookshelves. I think it's going to really get us through this tough decade. We're going to have to dare to struggle ourselves. And this is the first step. So I'm not with you in Sydney. We'll get a beer when I'm there next. Jude, fly over and join us. And many thanks. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jude. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at CSIS.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au.